Hello and welcome to Me Too. Thank you for listening. My name is Jess Chen, and this is episode two. This week, we have Duke University junior CJ Cruz performing the monologue Transfigured. After we hear the piece, I'll be sitting down with CJ and Duke senior Liddy Grantland to discuss grieving at Duke. Now, here is CJ performing Transfigured. A couple of times a week, I think about the cosmic void that separates me from my dad. My lips tremble, my eyes close, and I shatter like a plate into a million tiny pieces. I start grief crying, which uh, feels a lot more like dry heaving than any kind of crying that I used to do. When this happens, usually in the middle of the night, I frantically search for something to anchor me to his memory. Most of the time, I Google his name. I see the day that he died appear on the screen before me, and I read it to myself. March 11th, 2018. I feel even emptier when I see the blank space on the webpage where his obituary might have been. Sometimes I try to start writing one for him, even though I'm months too late. A couple sentences in, I always start feeling nauseous. I realize that I need to read his words, not mine, so I search for pieces of his writing that I never found before his death. Transfigured, he is no longer held by great wars or lovers. No one's mercenary, he leaves the page forever. In my most desperate moments, I message my mom, his old classmates, the drummer from his old college band, searching for new stories about him to replace my own. I feel like I'm breathing through a straw at this point, and I know I should go back to sleep. I have class tomorrow, but I turn to my own emails, to Facebook messages and texts with him. I desperately wish for more of these, even though I have to sift through all the shitty messages from his bad weeks before I finally find something that makes me calm enough to go back to sleep. For as long as I can remember... My dad's personality and his parenting waxed and waned with his illness. In my first memory of him, he drove a stolen police car to my house and snatched me out of bed, hallucinating that I was trapped inside of a fire. He was tortured by nightmares, asleep or awake. In my second memory, he took me to visit his writing 101 class at Duke. He gave me a mini notebook and let me sit with the first years during lecture. It was around that time that my dad chose to leave my mom, my sister, and me. The rest of my memories of him are contained in choppy custody visits that varied significantly with his health. During the good weeks, there were Shrek impressions, cookout runs, and Radiohead albums. But the bad weeks were really, really bad. As his illness worsened, he stopped teaching. Furious with his own brain and the world inside of it, he lashed out often and with a vengeance. The good days were few and far between by the time I started middle school. He began sending me disturbing messages in bursts, sometimes close to a hundred in a single day, criticizing my decisions, my intelligence, and my being. I don't think of you as a son anymore, he wrote. Sorry that you're such an idiot that you don't know what I mean. You won't be hearing from me again. Sometimes I thought it might be better that way, but there were always new messages. I have blackouts, dementia, and do things with no memory. I got into a fight with my neighbor, and I almost killed him. I don't want to get to that point again. 
I cannot get in a downward spiral or I might do something that's out of my control. I do not fear death. Let's end it here. No drama, just good luck on your finals. My psychiatrist at Duke told me to tell you that people like me don't live very long and that it's damaging to the psyche of the survivor once the parent is dead. I'm not going to let you drive me to kill myself. He spent sporadic weeks and voluntarily committed to a number of psychiatric facilities, including Duke's own for part of my sophomore year. The risk that he posed to himself is what frightened me more than anything. He reminded me often that he could die any day and told me that I would regret taking space from him, even when I needed to. It took me so long to realize that his mind and body were raging against the fading of his light, not against me or the small circle of people that had stuck around to see the journey through. It was during spring break last year that I got the dreaded call, the one where they tell you to sit down first. My dad had died the night before, and I felt just as shocked and guilty as he said I would. I went to his house to say a final goodbye. When I used to visit him, he would stay in bed for days on end, surrounded by pill bottles. I would regularly take breaks from playing with my sister to rest a hand on his chest, confirming with the rise and the fall that he was still in there somewhere. I didn't know what to expect seeing him lifeless. I'd never really seen him full of life. The sight of a completely motionless body was so unfamiliar to me that I had to stare for several minutes, convincing, when I, convincing myself when I thought I saw his chest fall or his fingers twitch that it was just an illusion. My mom stood nervously behind me. I couldn't stop thinking that this is the last time that I'm ever going to be in a room with both of my parents again. It felt like a momentous accomplishment that the three of us had walked a path shaped by trauma and mercy and still found ourselves together with some peace. For me, growing up with a parent who struggled so much with his mental health was marked by uncertainty and self-blame. I mourned the things that he carried, and that he had to carry them alone, but they were so fucking heavy and I felt weak. Experts say that when you're mourning a loss, it's best to not make any decisions for at least a year. It's not exactly practical advice when you're graduating from college. But I am paralyzed by fear, and I agonize over the smallest decisions. I can somehow tie every single choice back to his life and his death. I mean, if I were to die at 49, would I be happy with who I was and how I lived? In that way, losing a parent in college feels a lot like an early-onset midlife crisis. It forces you to confront your own mortality and grand insignificance. The flesh that made your flesh was just flesh, after all. It turns out the only thing harder than having a complicated relationship with my dad is grieving a complicated relationship with my dad. And grieving at Duke is a nightmare. I think it might even be a silent epidemic. Nobody knows what to say, least of all me. But those who have said something, almost anything, they have carried me this year. When I first got back to school, I fought every instinct in my body, screaming, go home, get out, this place is not gentle, and it's not where you'll heal. And for the most part, I haven't. I deny myself opportunities to think and talk about loss because mourning feels like a distraction. I've learned how to schedule a meltdown quickly and in private without bothering anybody or missing a beat. I Google my dad's name when I need a good cry, but most days I ignore this central slice of my life. Because what defines Duke students more than our ability to compartmentalize and trivialize, to reduce even the richest and the most fundamental human experiences like grieving into inconveniences? 
I'm thankful for what my dad taught me about the strength of the human spirit. He ripped through my life like a meteor, in motion with mystery, lighting up the night for a moment and making me look up in wonder. His love felt like hate, his hate felt like love, and all at once he made up half of me and took three-fourths away. I miss thinking that things might be different when I grow up. I even miss being mangled by him. And that's still where I'm at right now, wrestling with what he gave, took, and left behind. But above all, missing our shared reality, a reality in which we weren't separated by a cosmic void, back when I could still send him a song if it made me think of him. Packaging our relationship as something that has taught me empathy and resilience would feel fake. Because, more than anything, it's still breaking me. Hi! My name is uh, CJ Cruz. I am a junior now, uh, but when I did Me Too Monologues, I was a sophomore. Uh, yeah, did it, did it last year. Uh, I was a performer in it. Um, really like the experience, but I assume we're going to talk about it a little bit, um, so I won't, like, give away any spoilers for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> around campus, I'm involved in Duke University Improv. Uh, I do shows with Hoof and Horn and Duke Players also. I'm really interested in the arts. I'm doing Duke in L.A. in the spring, so that's kind of occupying awesome. a lot of my brain space right now, but that's that's me. I guess, I guess arts is kind of my, my whole shtick. Awesome. I'm Liddy Grantland. I am a senior, which is ridiculous. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we got this far. Um, I am a loyal fan of Me Too monologues um, and friend of Justin. <laughs> 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 uh, around campus, I am really involved in religious life. I am one of the student pastors of the Duke Wesley Fellowship and involved with Duke Chapel uh, as well as interfaith work on campus and sometimes do theater as well and uh, volunteer with the Community Empowerment Fund. That's all I can think of. Do you want to say something about your chronicle column? Yes, Ooh. I write a bi-weekly chronicle column uh, about my experience with chronic pain at Duke and in general. And so that's been something I started doing in August and have been doing all semester. Awesome. So now that we've taken a few breaths and had some time away from the piece, what were your first impressions and what does it kind of bring up for you? Ooh, uh, watching it just now? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I don't know. It's interesting looking back at it, um, I guess, kind of a year later, um, having some distance from it and the whole experience, because, like, my feelings about the piece, I guess, in a vacuum, well, I guess I can't look at the piece in a vacuum because it's kind of, it's tied to, like, my experience with the show and, like, with working with the other actors and with, with Betsy and Multi on it, um, and it's really interesting because that experience was, like, really lovely. They're, mm-hmm. they're super accommodating um, they just, they're like really well selected for the job, um, because they have to handle lots of very sensitive content and lots of like really important identity markers with like grace and tact, um, while also like putting together an excellent show. Um, and so they handled it really well. And like my relationships with the other cast members were like super great. Like there was a very, like we would. It, we would try to keep it light because a lot of the content was so kind of heavy. Um, and so it's. I have very positive associations with the experience and what I got out of it, um, but obviously that's that was a concerted effort to keep it light because the piece itself was so like heavy. Um, there were like lots of, you know, just lots lots of 
like emotions that, mm-hmm. that um, come up when you see it just as its own thing. Like, I don't know, just the idea with of, of grief uh, at Duke specifically, mm-hmm. um, but grief that also speaks to like a universal kind of reaction and how like a lot of the, the, the feelings you associate with grief are amplified when you're in the intensity of a college setting. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the complicated kind of like in the middle of still working through emotions that you have, like like grieving a complicated relationship with a parent um, being more difficult than having the complicated relationship with them as well. It's because you you're not sure how to feel. There's I mean, if I can extrapolate anything from the author said, there's there's a sense of like relief that you might feel a little bit guilty about. There's there's also just mm-hmm. obviously like like intense sadness for for like the, the good times that there were. And in a way, I guess you've kind of been grieving that a little yeah. bit because of the, the kind of decline that's happened um, prior to the death itself. Um, just the ideas of that, um, the idea of grief kind of being almost a distraction in a perverse way mm-hmm. from the life that you have to live and it just kind of being this thing that's in the way. Um, yeah, it, I love that part where you say, uh, like, what is what is Duke good for other than compartmentalizing yes. everything yes. that is rich and fundamental to human experience? Every complex sure. emotion that's not like productivity and <laughs> excitement and having yeah. a good time. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and also like like the um the idea of trying to hold on to what like is left. Like like the idea of Googling his name or trying yeah. to dredge up um like old messages or finding anything that's that's new that you might have missed or, or anything you can get from kind of relationship that like has passed is a really interesting idea because it's very modern in a sense um like like finding the social media of somebody that you're grieving or of, or of a relationship that's not there anymore and i guess as, as an actor trying to like find my way into this yeah. um yeah. like it was i tried to think about my experiences as like uh as a military brat i i grew up as a like my dad was in the navy and i moved around about every two years and so there were um a lot of I would, I would have to move away from my friends a lot of the time and would, like, lose relationships with them um, just because of not keeping in contact super well. And then years later, I would look back at, like, their social medias and, like, old pictures of us together and stuff like that. And it's... Don't want to equate that at all to, like, grieving or anything. But, like, emotionally, I could I could yeah, try to kind of use that as... Yeah, yeah, as, as trying to find my way into what it must have been like to have this, this complicated relationship that is, you know, cut off and then having to kind of, like, reconcile that while in a stressful college environment. Yeah, one of the things that I'm curious about, since you both have theater experience, is is that question of how do you tap into um, experiences that you've had in order to generate the mm-hmm. feelings and the ideas that you want expressed in the monologue? And how might that be different from a monologue that's a bit less intimate or a mm-hmm. bit more lighthearted? Well, I've never done a Me Too monologue, obviously, but one of the things I loved about this and that I think is unique about the way that an anonymous monologue show like this operates is that I think when we talk about grief or really any complex emotion um, at Duke especially it's or really in any like one-on-one interaction with someone who you're not super close with who doesn't understand exactly what you're going through there's a pressure in that conversation to end the, a sentence with oh but it's fine like or it's okay or mm-hmm. to say well and then I learned so much of these good things and so happy ending of the story <laughs> so nobody leaves feeling mm-hmm. upset and that I remember hearing this monologue and like it being one of the ones that I remembered most from the show this past year and thinking about it later. I immediately texted a good friend of mine who lost her mom while she was at Duke because I was like, you need to go see Me Too monologues. There's one that's speaking to it because it wasn't an easy like 
I learned so much from this incredible person, and I will always remember him. Because all of that is true. It is like, uh, this is messy and (laughs) hard, and I don't understand it. And it ends with, I wish I could tie a bow on it, but I can't. Mm -hmm. And that in a way that I don't think uh, a monologue show where the person who it's about maybe could say it, like the way that having it be anonymous and having it be sort of separate from that person's life um, but able to be shared kind of leaves the door open for the complexity to still be there for it not to have like an easy ending Um, but also much harder to perform probably (laughs) much harder (laughs) to figure out how to do it yeah I'm really proud of um, the 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 choice to leave it on a dissonant chord is what yeah. I, yeah, that's what that's what I call this. Yeah. That's what I said about it. It's like Ooh, I like it. that. Yeah, like like it like chord. yeah. It ends on a dissonant chord, which I think is a very strong artistic choice. And like like you said, it's so easy. Uh, like writing the monologues to want to kind of just like tie like like you said tie a bow on it or like kind of at least be like. But here's the silver lining, and I'm still gonna move forward. And it has a sense of that, but it's also like no, like this is where I'm at, and you need to take an unflinching mm-hmm. look at this. And like this isn't like monologue's done it's resolved beginning middle end like it's a process you know and yeah I'm proud to have been a part of one that was like that and really thankful that the author had the courage to like leave it out there and and you're right it does speak to like the the strength of Me Too monologues as a format like the anonymity um and like we always say like we're like vessels for it um Mm -hmm. for 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 these authors and and I think it's like like you said the the ability to the ability for the author to feel like they can be maybe a little bit bolder or braver than they would if their name was on it or like mm-hmm. if they had to perform it themselves. Like they just put their exact honest feelings out there and then let the person, the monologuist, be able to perform it for them. One of the lines that I actually wrote down because it always gives me chills um, is grieving at Duke is a nightmare. I think it might even be a silent epidemic. Oh God, and I so that, so hard. <laughs> that really talks to how this whole narrative of I encountered this illness or this thing and then I conquered it and then I learned all this mm. and now I'm stronger than ever. That's something that we see in the news, in the media, in arts also. And it's still a process for so many people, especially at this point in our college experience, that we're going through we're going through so many of these things at Duke. And I guess first, a few of my questions are, do you agree that Duke is a bad place or a very hard place um, to grieve and if so what aspects of Duke make it that difficult I really I think I snapped the hardest in the show at that point and I you can tell the audience also everyone resonated even if they haven't been grieving at Duke because even just the experience of being a normal Duke student everyone has scheduled a breakdown or a moment to be a human being Um, like the other day (laughs) I thought well I'm in the middle of a rehearsal right now feeling all these big feelings so I will feel these feelings at 9 30 and then I will (laughs) at 10 30 finish my reading for tomorrow morning and all will be well (laughs) and I will have gotten it out it will be fine Hmm. um I talk a lot about how chronic pain is like a is very synonymous with grief or or that coming to terms with a new diagnosis Hmm. is a lot like grieving because you're sort of grieving the present for not being what you wanted it to be, but also a future that you can't know what it's going to be like yet, except that it has this asterisk on it that's like, it will be painful, <laughs> and that's really all you know about it. Um, and so grieving that at Duke has been, I don't want to say a nightmare, but I also don't want to say that so I don't make anyone uncomfortable, um, which I think we do a lot, but that 
it is so challenging because there are so many finite things that need to get done. And the word need in that sentence isn't actually true. It's a need that we put on ourselves to make straight A's or to attend every class or to go to every social event. Um, And so I want to, I I also believe that grieving at Duke can be not a nightmare. Um, And I think that I'm learning how to, how to do it well, but that it, it takes a lot of time and that one thing Duke students don't have is, is time. (laughs) I feel like that, that manifests a lot in these sort of black humor things like, where's the best play, place to cry, <laughs> to cry. on campus mm-hmm. or like where in Perkins have you cried or mm-hmm. you know yeah. questions like that yeah it's weird like like it's kind of a little bit of like a um just a like non sequitur but like like the like the meme culture I feel like is almost oh, gone absolutely. so like dark you know like it's all <laughs> it like, really has it's nihilist <laughs> yeah it's, it's super like nihilist like the way that like internet pop culture meme like zeitgeist is moving is so like <laughs> is so like, it's just so, it's so sad <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting what like what that's reflecting. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and the way that you know, you either at Duke, if you're talking to an acquaintance in a line somewhere, are like things are great, everything's wonderful, I love everything, 100% perfect life going on here, or there's another way that, where you can do that that still feels fake. That's like, ah, oh, I'm a mess. Oh, I stayed up oh, till yeah. three. <laughs> I, it's like the competition to be yeah, like, sure. oh, I spent eight hours on this essay. Well, I spent 10. <laughs> so I won. <laughs> and what really that masks a lot, I think, can it can mean that if your friend is suffering or if your friend needs support and that's how they present it to you. Yeah. Like, I spent 10 hours on this essay and then cried in the basement of Perkins. What our response to that should be is like, all right, do you want to unpack some of that? Like, can we go get some coffee and can we talk th- that through? But we don't have time for coffee because we need to go study. Yeah. Um, and so I, I always want to push it back against the, the opposite of effortless perfection, which That's is a like really good point. competing to be more of a disaster because <laughs> mm-hmm. then when something's really wrong, it's so hard to signal that to someone without really getting in their face and saying something is wrong please help me yeah Yeah. what would be an ideal situation or process at duke or elsewhere um, to process experiences like these it was really hard for me to think of a good answer to this so i'm hoping you guys have some good Mm. ideas yeah i don't know i think I, i first of all i don't feel like there's any perfect answer um which I guess is kind of an obvious thing to say, mm-hmm. but you know, <laughs> I don't know, like it's a good disclaimer. Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. Disclaimer: there, uh, nothing's going to ever be perfect ever. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. Like in an ideal world, there's just more time, right? Like, like mm-hmm. you just have time to be able to decompress and like process the emotions that you're feeling. Um, but that's like practically that's just not a feasible reality. So I guess being more efficient with the time that we have in in terms specifically of like being able to like main like like not monitors not the right word but i'm trying to find the word like um just check in on like mental health like like having Mm -hmm. easier access to to um professional like like caps like services um yeah i don't know and just and just yeah i don't know like i said there's no there's no good answer That 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 would be my thought is like if we just had more time and if there was there was there were structures in place where we could like 
that where we could feel more heard but mm-hmm. that's that's very like abstract terms i don't know yeah, yeah. Well, what, do you, what do you think yeah i agree and i think the time thing is so interesting because there is time we just use it differently but um mm. but, i think that's a good point right yeah. That, yeah. and i i was speaking to someone the other day who was talking about that they'd already taken a semester off and so because of something traumatic that happened and they needed to process it mm-hmm. but that you only get nine semesters on financial aid so uh, they give you one amount of time that you can grieve <laughs> and then you need to be able to move on and pass mm-hmm. all of your classes um, or that if you register with the students with disabilities office you can have more time on assessments or you can have more time or more days where you don't go to class or something, but that involves paperwork and it involves advocating for yourself and it involves like forcing your way, making time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that making some of those structures more just um, would make the most sense, but I also know that Duke is living in a broader world that is hyper-capitalist and hyper-interested in maximizing time. and so. I don't exactly know what it would look like for Duke to push back against that in like a kind of a radical way. Right. I like that you brought up that there is so much bureaucracy. There's, mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to make an appointment with a psychologist at CAPS, you have to take this 15-minute survey right. first <laughs> on an iPad, and then you have to come back oh, in, like, seven weeks. An hour <laughs> and a half to see the first. That, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so I think that given these constraints, we also have to rely a bit more on you know, our close friends mm-hmm. and our community mm-hmm. here. And so I guess my question is, if the writer was someone that you knew well, um, someone in your close circle, what would you do or what might be a good thing to do in this kind of situation? Yeah, I don't know. I think I always try to ask people what they need um, because what I need changes every day. <laughs> sometimes I really do want some time to talk about something and other times I really do want to watch TV and I would love to do that with someone else next to me where we don't have to talk about our trauma. (laughs) We can just watch TV together. Um, But I also know that grief is hard because you feel like in relationship it takes up too much space where if you're grieving something it's never there's no end date on it and you're worried that the person you're talking to is tired of hearing about it. and doesn't really want you to bring it up right now because it'll bring us everyone down and it will disrupt everyone's day if you're feeling some feelings. Um, but I think as a friend, always affirming, like, we can talk about this when you want to. We can talk about it as much as you want to. Um, making it clear that you're not going to, uh, that the person is not taking up too much space with their grief, that it can right. take up as much space as it needs to. Um, when friends have done that for me, I've have become a puddle of tears and (laughs) not been able to handle it because it just feels so good Mm -hmm. to feel like I could take up as much space as I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you have struggles that you're working through, at least is helping you or is like being a shoulder to cry on, like you feel like, oh no, they're just taking, like I'm just taking up so much space from them or I'm taking so much from them by doing this. Like I must be so draining right now. Like I don't know what kind of a day they're having. Like just, just, um, just being really worried about like the effect that you're having on the person who's wanting to help you Mm -hmm. and so I feel like in the role of the person who's trying to to be there for somebody um it's really important to make it clear to the person that you're wanting to be there for that like you like they're that you're not a burden that um that that like this is something that you want to do that you're not taking up too much space and that like that 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 you're here you know Mm -hmm. like I if I'm like trying to be somebody who's there for you like I'm 
I'll drop whatever I'm doing and like be mm-hmm. there for you and just let me know. And that's not, you're not taking too much space by doing that. Yeah. Um, and it's also tricky because it's like, what is your, what is your role? What is too far? What is not too far? Like, yeah. like, mm-hmm. is it okay to ask them how they're doing? Kind of like, like how, like, is it like, what's okay to kind of do unprompted and, and yeah. like, you know, is it, should you just wait for them to reach out to you? Um, but then if you're just doing that, are you appearing like too callous and like, like, are they, do they feel like they're a burden by reaching out? It's, it's a lot of complicated gray areas and it's still something that I am not like perfect at, nor is anybody. Um, but I think as long as we're like asking those questions and trying to like be there for each other and be yeah. better and like, you know, I don't yeah. know. And I think too, like having, having those conversations, like, okay, if you're not talking about it, do you want me to ask you or, yeah, yeah. um, you know, because sometimes when you're feeling intense grief, you are thinking about it all the time and mm-hmm. you might want to talk about it all the time, but also you might be having a great day and really not want to delve into your <laughs> trauma um, over lunch. And I think having the boundary to where you have enough trust where you can say, I will be there for you no matter what. And I will be taking care of my mental health at the same time. Like I will mm-hmm. still be asleep at 1130, but I also am here for you and that to sort of strike that really difficult balance where both people in the relationship have their needs met is so challenging. But we also do it better the more we practice it, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And we yeah, yeah. we don't practice it all that much. <laughs> yeah, I love that affirmation that that person is not being a burden, yeah. not taking too much space, and also having that really explicit conversation of, um, do you want me to talk to you about this? Do you want me mm-hmm. to reach out or not? Mm-hmm. I think those are both really great. I think that's all the time we have, but thank you both so much for coming in. Thank you, CJ and Liddy, for being on the show and discussing the piece. As always, please share your own stories through our website, which can be found at metoomonologuesduke.org. We are on the iTunes store, and please feel free to leave us a review.